Well, um, welcome everyone. Uh, welcome to the Rudy House uh, Research Seminar Series. Uh, this is a series that was set up last year, um, and it's a really to bring together researchers at departments, uh, students and staff, but also out with university. And each seminar, we choose a sort of a concept or a word, then ask our three speakers to talk about how that concept has affected their research or influenced. So often we're looking for alternative uh, perspectives, um, different stand ideas that come into shaping multidisciplinary research. Because here in the department, we have a various range of PhD, uh, DPhil, sorry, and uh, postgraduate programs. This is a whole range of public programs as well. So we uh, are a multidisciplinary department. We also have a whole range of research going on at the same time. So each of the seminars is aimed to take an alternative perspective on various uh, uh, concepts or themes. So today's theme is, um, is focusing on patterns. Uh, advance notice for the next seminar is on decay. Uh, and one of this, and we thought, well, why not? It's something different. And, and just an example of an alternative perspective, we have one of our uh, uh, lecturers talking about, uh, from the Language Learning Centre, talking about language, language decay and how we forget language. Uh, now where was I? Um, so we, uh, that was, uh, yeah. So I'm very glad to have three doctors here. It's Dr. Um, Bieber, Dr. Lockhart, and Dr. Riney. Um, uh, David Bieber is a physicist by training. He did his DPhil here in Oxford, and he's a financial analysis now with Citibank. Or with City, sorry, is that the correct name? Yes, yeah. Bob's a, uh, Bob Lockhart is a lecturer here in the department. He's a ma mathematician and a computing specialist. Um, and he's writing a, a new book coming up soon called Near Doings. Is that Near Rings? Near, near, near Rings. rings. Near Doings. Near Rings. I'll, 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 I'll probably falter again when I try and read out your title properly. Um, and Dr. Kevin Ryan is a visiting Commonwealth Fellow. He's uh, based at the University of West Indies in Jamaica, but he's here in the department for three months to, to carry on with some research and also to uh, look at some best practice uh, teaching uh, setups. So welcome all you three and welcome everyone here in the audience. Um, the aim of the afternoon, apart from to discuss uh, patterns from various perspectives, we've, a is we've asked the speakers to each give a 15-minute pitch, really to throw out some ideas from their own interests in, in the theme of patterns. And then after each 15 minutes, there's time for a couple of questions, uh, and then the debate really will finish at the end of all three, uh, three uh, presentations for half an hour or so. Uh, six o'clock, there's a wine reception for all in the common room, and then uh, I think for those who've booked in, there's a dinner at 6.30 here in the department as well. So without further ado, and I should say my name is David Howard, I'm the Director of Research in the department here, um, but I'd like to hand over now to our first guest, Dr. David Bieber, uh, as I said, he's a financial an analyst at City. Uh, David, uh, a while ago, said he woke up in the middle of the night always thinking of patterns. So for a while, I've been waiting for his latest, uh, you know, fashionable Icelandic knitwear, but he's still on financial markets. So uh, over to you, David, and you'll be talking to the title of Pattern Chasing in Financial Markets, Developing Systematic Approaches to Capture Returns Efficiently. So thanks very much. Thank you. Well, thank you. It's a grand title, um, and uh, it's a bit of when you were trained as a physicist, um, and now we have uh, Bob Lockhart, who's a mathematician, and Bob will be talking, or well, looking at some of the, the mathematical uh, patterns that which he's uh, carried research into. Um, having failed to get the title of Bob's uh, book right uh, on Near Rings, I'll now read the title of his uh, talk um, precisely. Uh, so Bob's going to be talking to the title of, it is a metatarsal chimp tent, or should it be a 10th trimmist alpaca? So having not understood really uh, the, the nature of near rings, I won't even attempt to understand uh, what the talk is going to be focusing on. But thanks very much indeed, Bob, for revealing some of your interests 
in patterns and how it's shaped your own uh, research uh, interests? <laughs> Well, this is going to be in the nature of uh, light relief, I hope. Although whether it's light relief for me or you is something we might take at questions. Uh, I have been interested in various biological systems, and I was hoping there weren't any biologists in the audience I could talk about them, but I, I saw Jocelyn just now, so I'm already nervous. Um, and that will come up in, in something of what I'm going to talk about. Uh, it won't come up in relation to chimps. First time I heard about patterns, I was very tiny, and my mother used to sit... Uh, disturbingly knitting and uh, she said that patterns were something to do with the shapes she produced in wool uh, but they're also to do with the instructions she had for writing these for producing these shapes that's how mathematicians see patterns they see them in terms of an effect and the algorithm you use to produce that effect but it may not be how physicists perhaps and we have some physicists here or certainly biologists might view these things and I'll try and illustrate that although I won't give you any answers to this, better people than me have talked about them. This is a honeycomb. Now, mathematicians love this. It's hexagons. Hexagons are six-sided figures. In fact, even better than that, regular hexagons. They get excited about this because people write reams of stuff about time and the plane, and there are three kinds of regular shapes that you can use to, 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 to tile the plane, and the hexagon's one of them. So people have been looking at the shapes. You get these wonderful things in beehives, uh, Joe Nicholas in our department has beehives and sells the honey. I don't think she's here. But anyway, um, and, and you wonder how they're produced. Now, people like Johannes Kepler in the, 16th, in the 17th century looked at this and, and made suggestions. And one of the suggestions they made was that this shape uniquely economises on the use of wax. And there are papers that, that, that purport to show that. And that seems to be a pretty good explanation about why this shape occurs in beehives. Except, how do we prove an assertion like that in a biological context. If it was a mathematical context, I could do a proof. Biologically, much more difficult. I don't know if you've ever heard of Darcy Thompson. I'm sure most of you have. He was a, a biologist at the University of St. Andrews. In 1917, he wrote a classic called On Growth and Form. And one of his suggestions was that one might look to more structural explanations of, sh of shapes like this. One shouldn't rush along the evolutionary road. Now, that's not to say that the explanation I earlier advanced was not the correct one. The thing I want to ask of you, really, is how would we define correctness in these terms? What he said was that this kind of shape occurs quite naturally. Are we, are we to suggest that soap bubbles are optimising their, their existence by producing nice hexagons? Oh, there's the giant's causeway. Uh, again, you know, nothing to do with evolution, perhaps. So we have to be a bit more guarded when we're looking at patterns in the natural world. I suppose it comes down to the old philosophical chestnut of the problem of induction. And better people than me have given a whole range of ideas about that, for everybody from David Hume to, to A.J. Ayer. So I, I certainly won't mention that today. If you want more, talk to my colleague Marion Talbot. Uh, I'm not very good at physical patterns. I just don't spot the symmetries. Maybe you, you do, and I, I've taught this stuff to students, and I, I notice, although I hope they haven't caught me out, they probably have, that they spot symmetries much more be better than I do. Uh, but I do spot symmetries associated with sort of syntactical patterns, the, the, the symmetries associated with numbers, I think, I think I do. So here's a pattern you might uh, remember drearily from your childhood. Do you remember writing out the decimal expansion of a fraction? When you do this internal process of, of division. And there it is. There, you can see it there, 0.33333, a third. Uh, it, for mathematicians, decimals should be going on forever. So if it's 0.5, we actually think of it as 0.5, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0. 
And the thing about rational numbers is that when you have one and you do this expansion, you can prove fairly easily that you get a repetition. Maybe this is not news to any of you. So here's the seventh. One, four, two, eight, five, seven, one, four, two, eight, five, seven, one, four, two, it's, it's waltz time. And that signals a rational number. Now here's a number. Can anyone see how this particular pattern's produced? Take a while, I guess. Yeah, yeah. yeah, this is a number. This is Champenown's constant. Champenown published a paper on this in the 1930s in the bulletin of, of, of the, of the, of the uh, London Math Society. Um, it has interesting properties. For example, if you think of all the, the, the great texts that are missing in the history of, the, uh, uh, of, of humanity, for example, the Lost Library of Alexandria, well, if you were to take a text from that library and reduce it to ASCII code for each, each letter and each space, you would get a number that would appear in Champenown's constant. So all human life is there. It is the difference between data and information. All possible data is in, that, in, in the expansion of that decibel, and it's all completely inaccessible. Champenelm uh, was a contemporary of Alan Turing. He was at college with him. Turing was vastly um, impressed by Champenelm. He called him the champ, uh, but Champenelm went to the bad. Um, in later life, he became an economist, uh, and he ended up as a professor of econ economics at Oxford and I think Cambridge. He even, uh, he even advised Harold Wilson dying in the 1990s. It's funny, if you look at rational numbers and you say, okay, we understand them, they're the ones where we get this repetition of, of, of decimal expansions, then you realise very quickly that this is not a particularly great test for being rational. Champenelle's number doesn't have this repetition, so it's decidedly irrational. There are classic irrational numbers that one uses in one's mathematical life. E is one and pi is one. In the 19th century, they were proved to be not only irrational, but transcendental. But here's something you may not know. Nobody in the world knows whether e plus pi is rational or not. Nobody knows whether pi over e is rational. There are people who can recite pi to, 40 to 400 bases of decimals, but we don't know about patterns that might exist in, in, in the expansion of pi as a decimal. And, it, and it's a very rich area of research in number theory. It, it, to, to all intents and purposes, it seems to us that the expansion of pi is in some sense random. But when we come to ask what we mean by random, which is the opposite of today's seminar, the opposite of pattern, then we fall into very difficult philosophical questions of logic, which are very hard to answer. Luckily, I'm not going to attempt that today. I'm going to show you something else. You know this guy, don't you? It's the stuff of elementary mass lectures. The um, invention, well, first reported, as far as we know, by Leonardo of, of Pisa. These days, it's called... Fibonacci, although nobody ever called him Fibonacci in his own lifetime, that was a, a, a name given him in the 17th century by a, by a, a German historian, I believe. But anyway, um, this is the idea. You start off with one and one, and then you produce a sequence by adding the last two. One and one is two, one and two is three. You've all seen the Fibonacci sequence. You can produce your own Fibonacci sequence. You can go home and write down two, two, two integers and start it off. I picked two here. 4 and 9. So there we have 4 and 9. 4 and 9 is 13. 9 and 13 is 22. 22 and, uh, uh, 13 and 22 is 35 and so on. Why should anybody do this? Well, there's a pattern that screams out at you. If you look not at the pattern you've produced, but the ratios, you get this. Supposing your sequence, which you'll get when you go home tonight with your calculator, is F1, F2, F3, F4 and so on. Well, look at the ratios. Look at F1 of, F2 over F1 
and S3 over F2, and so on. I wrote it down for my sequence, and here it is, 225, 144, 169, 159, 162. Here we go. Because the number you get gets closer and closer to this guy, and that's called the golden number. And if you have any feel for the excitement of that, why on earth should this come up? I can give you a really neat proof of that, but luckily, the margins of this talk aren't big enough for me to include it. However, in questions, I could show you. Um, this number is, is a number that, in classical times, was thought to be uniquely aesthetically pleasing. A guy called Vitruvius wrote a several-volume book on, on architecture in, in rather poor Latin, I understand, and he claimed that this was the, the, a number whose proportions, if used in a building, would be pleasing to people. A number of modern psychologists have done tests on this, and as far as I know, no one's ever succeeded in proving that there is any relation between this, this, this number and, and, and human sensibilities. But a guy in, I suppose, the 15th century, um, took up the challenge of reproducing the human form in, com in conformance to, to this ratio. And there it is. And that's why it's called Vitruvian Man, the classic thing by da Vinci. I'll finish up very quickly, because I'm not sure how I'm doing with t for time, by telling you about freezes. Now, first of all, I'm going to tell you what a freeze is. So here's a freeze. Rather nice, isn't it? In fact, sadly, this is not the kind of freeze I want to talk about. The kind of freeze I want to talk about is the one you might see in, in a bathroom somewhere. You know these irritating long lines that, that repeat something over and over again? Now, that's the kind of freeze I want, one with translational symmetry. Now, mathematicians have looked at freezes of those kind and managed to establish that, in fact, subject to that restriction of translational symmetry, there are only seven kinds that can occur. Here's a couple of rather dressed-down freezes, uh, and I want you to look at the symmetries. This is the first freeze, so it goes on forever around your bathroom wall, and the, and the second one's below it. Now, I'm hopeless at spotting symmetries. Maybe you're better than me. Can everybody see that there is a... If you put a mirror across there, there's a reflective symmetry, a horizontal reflection. Can everybody see that? Yeah. Uh, how about here? No reflective symmetry in the horizontal direction, is there? Okay. Um, what about vertically? Uh, well, if you put a mirror there, can you see the whole thing reflects on itself and there's a vertical symmetry? Is that okay? What about this one? I'll leave it to you. Is there a, is there a vertical reflective symmetry? There is, isn't there? A uh, few more. If you put a point there, you can revolve. There's a rotational symmetry. Okay. What about this one? Any rotational symmetries? Oh, dear. This is where I get lost. I think there is, isn't there? Yeah, there is a rotational symmetry. So, but you, you appreciate the, the horizontal reflective symmetry was not there in the second one. Now, the game when classifying freezes, and I promise you you know about, as much about them as I do by the end of this talk, is to look for those symmetries. But there's a further set symmetry, one that you may not be so familiar with. In both of these cases, if you put a mirror across the middle, a horizontal mirror, and reflect, and then displace, then you do get another symmetry of the, of the freeze. This is a so-called glide symmetry. Can everybody see that? See, I, I'd have to work in it. You're obviously better than me. So you reflect and then move along, and that would go to there. Okay? Bonk along. That's a glide symmetry. So with, with these possible symmetries, you can classify any kind of freeze that can occur. How am I doing for time? Um, you'll have about a minute to go. Okay, so let's look at how a normal person walks. So I'm going to use you, me as an example of this. So you walk like this, don't you? Now imagine your footprints. That will produce a freeze. Would there be a horizontal reflective symmetry in that? 
They would not, would they? Because like Mr. Spigot, you've got nothing against either leg. Okay? Would there be a rotational symmetry in your, in your, in your footprints? Again, no, because when you rotate, your feet apart and move in the other direction. No rotational one. What about a, a vertical symmetry? No, of course not again, for the same reason. Would there be a glide reflective symmetry? Yes, there would. So a normal person, and in summertime in Oxford, you can see normal people in Corn Market, they will walk like that, and there'll be only one symmetry, a glide. Now, what about an, an Oxford academic walking? They might probably walk more like that. Now, what are the symmetries that would be involved in their footprints? Well, of course, you get the glide again, but you get a horizontal symmetry. Here is a catalogue of all the possible symmetries associated with, 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 with uh, freezes, and you'll find the Oxford academic occurring there and the normal person there. And I've given that, give, produced some papers which give you all possible symmetries of freezes. You might have to take one. So thank you very much for coming, and uh, I'll hand on to the next speaker. Oh, there may be some questions. <laughs> Any, any any questions for Bob? Because I, I mean, physics has been defined probably incorrectly as uh, applied math mathematics. So I, I think maybe in the questions afterwards, it'd be interesting to see whether Dave, in David's work, he's looking at this type of symmetry or maths or numbers or, or not. Because I'm I'm uh, I'm going back to my school days to try and uh, follow some of the maths and, math and, and physics. Um, but we'll, we'll we'll move on to uh, are there are there any questions for Bob? We could, we'll follow up uh, in the second half in, in the questions overall, link the two papers together, or three papers. And it's a great pleasure now to uh, welcome Dr. Kevin Reining. Um, as I said, mentioned, Kevin's uh, University of West Indies in Jamaica at the Mona campus, and he's a visiting Commonwealth Fellow. And uh, it's the last time I'll tell this story, but when uh, Kevin and I were talking about the Commonwealth Fellowship, we were both looking at one of the sections that said, uh, you know, scholars uh, will have a warm clothing allowance. We both scoffed at this sort of neo-colonial sort of notion of you know, the tropics, etc. Well, Kevin arrived from Jamaica about two weeks ago in the middle of a blizzard. The first thing we, we, we thought about was going to the warm weather clothing allowance. Um, so I'm very glad you're here with us uh, for this term. Uh, his research is on sustainability development and he's been looking very closely at the links between climate change and food security particularly in the Caribbean so I know that's uh, you're currently doing research on this area and today you'll be talking sorry. to yeah. sorry the title of Cli climate change agriculture and food insecurity in the Caribbean uh, with insights from Jamaica thank you David so this is a completely different type of presentation but uh, I think it's very much relevant because when I think about patterns um, you know the changes in the climate is very much important to many different states in the Caribbean and um, it's the it's the changes over time that we use to project what the climate might look like in the future and this will have serious you know implications for people's livelihoods and so I thought it was very much fitting to present uh, this work and of course, when Liz asked me to present the talk, I was also in the frame of mind of thinking about the change in climate that I'll go through a couple months after. And so it was very much linked to this whole idea of talking about um, climate change and its impact on, on, on our food security. Uh, first of all, the Caribbean is considered to be an, a, a hotspot when it comes down to climate change. When you look at IPCC reports, um, the Caribbean, even though it contributes a small percentage to the global greenhouse gas emissions, 
we are expected to be one of the first and most severely impacted by climate change. And so when you talk about the, 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 our development challenges, the whole issue of climate change is very much important as it relates to the way forward. And when you think about the regional characteristics in terms of our small sizes, the fact that most of our towns are located along the coast, and also the, 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 the fragile nature of our economies, um, all of this plays into our vulnerability to you know, these global environmental change. Um, changes that are expected to come alongside global economic change. And so the whole issue of you know, double exposure is very important to us because it's not just about climate change. Uh, it's also about the you know, instability in the global economy. And when you think about the fact that by the next couple of few decades from now, we'll have 9 billion people living on the planet. 9 billion people that will be demanding more energy, demanding more food. All of that trickles down to what happens in the local economy. And so even though I'm looking at Jamaica, it does relate back to the, the larger picture as well. And um, agriculture is particularly at risk because especially in the Caribbean, uh, we depend a lot on the, you know, natural elements. It's not as high tech as you'll find in, in the developed world. And so the amount of rainfall and also the seasonal distribution of rainfall is particularly important to the livelihoods of many persons throughout the Caribbean. And so there needs to be some urgent steps to assess the potential impacts and build local and regional adaptive capacity to some of these changes that are expected to come. And in terms of Jamaica, you know, agriculture, even though it contributes just 6% to our GDP, it's very important. Uh, because it's, it is a major source of livelihood for many persons. And um, persons also rely on the agricultural industry for subsistence um, purposes as well. So if you think about the, the, the fact that you, know, you might have close to 300,000 um, small farmers in Jamaica out of a population of roughly 2.7, 2.8 million people, uh, agriculture is a very important sector. Um, and it faces a variety of internal and external threats. And when you think about internal threats, uh, we have, for instance, an aging farming population. Uh, the average age is over 56 in terms of our, the average farmer in Jamaica. Most young people are trying to get out of agriculture because it's, it's not as you know, glamorous as other sectors. Um, uh, so it's very difficult. I, I remember speaking to one farmer um, in the field, and he said to me, it's better to probably play a lotto which is the lottery, um, the lottery game, than to bank your money and, and farming. And so it's a big, big issue. Um, high investment, low returns, many times. And so, you know, when you think about those internal issues in terms of the demographics, the fact that we have very weak infrastructure, uh, both in terms of transportation, marketing, um, very poor extension services, uh, these all play into the, the sort of vulnerability that you'll find in Jamaica and it's quite indicative of many other small island states throughout the world. Um, and added to that is, of course, the external factors, a lot of which we have no control over. But at the same time, they do play a very significant role when it comes on to you know, how we'll be able to adapt in terms of for future changes. And all these changes, of course, will be compounded, all these threats will be compounded by climate change. And so it's, it's hard for you to discuss food insecurity in the Caribbean without not looking at climate change. And, and this is something that we're feeling. I know there are a number of debates out there over whether or not you know, 
climate change is real. But based on what we've seen in the Caribbean, whether or not it's climate change or climate um, variability, we have seen changes. And, um, and this is just an example of how vulnerable the agricultural sector is to extreme weather events. Uh, before the 1990s, Jamaica had around just, um, had, had been <coughs> impacted by just around three hurricanes between 1950 and the start of the 1990s. Since the 1990s, we've seen a significant increase in the number of storms and hurricanes. We almost expect to be impacted by a hurricane or at least a storm or, or a drought event every single year. And so this is affecting us significantly. It is, uh, it has resulted in you know, millions of dollars in damages to the agricultural sector. And it is a major issue when it comes on to trying to secure people's livelihoods. So um, what I'm going to present on briefly is this project that we've started, um, funded by the USAID. Um, and we've been doing this since July of last year, and it's an 18-month project. And it's part of the um, Jamaica REACH program, uh, which is aimed at streamlining, streamlining ch climate change in the developmental objectives of, of Jamaica. Uh, and, and I like this particular project because it, it forces us, or it enables us to work alongside you know, policy experts um, and the technocrats. And it's not just doing research for, making pub for, for getting publication's sake, but it's real work with getting into the field of farmers, spending a significant chunk of time finding out what the challenges are, and um, trying to come up with this uh, framework in terms of assessing vulnerability in a very integrated, multidisciplinary way. And so the core project activities involve um, an IVA, which is an Integrated Vulnerability Assessment Household Survey. We do some crop modeling as well, and I'll explain that a little, a little later. Um, and some knowledge, attitude, and perception surveys um, with local farmers in terms of you know, how they perceive climate change. Um, but speaking in very simple terms so that they can understand what we're talking about. And um, trying to come up with climate risk profiles uh, for the different communities. Because one of the things that we realize is that you know, vulnerability is not homogeneous. It is very much um, different for different um, communities. And even as small as Jamaica is, there are several different agroecological zones. And so you, for you to tackle climate change and, and, food, and food security issues, the policies have to be robust. Uh, the policies have to be able to take those different differences into consideration instead of a one-size-fits-all um, approach. And so what we did was to look at four um, farming communities located in distinct um, agroecological zones. And um, so this is just giving you an idea as to how different the, the sort of environments are. Uh, so this is southern St. Elizabeth. And St. Elizabeth is the food basket of Jamaica, even though it receives the lowest annual rainfall. The farmers have managed to adapt significantly to that type of um, weather pattern that, that, that they've been used to over the years through a series of different um, methods like mulching, um, which is very, very unique, um, not just to to, to Jamaica, but to the Caribbean, and also I think in certain parts of Africa as well, uh, where farmers will lay certain um, layers of grass on the surface of the soil, 
to keep it cool to reduce evapotranspiration. So this is a way in which they've, they've adapted to that sort of climate. And so within just a, a couple miles away from um, St. Elizabeth, you can see a totally different type of um, climate as well. And so the sort of challenges that the farmers will face here will be totally different from the sort of challenges that the farmers um, will face in southern St. Elizabeth. So, so this is one of our community, Hounslow. Um, and then we have Douglas Castle, sorry, Christiana uh, Douglas Castle. And here, which is along the Blue Mountains, which is famous for coffee, um, we have Spring, Spring Hill, which is very wet um, compared to all the other communities. So it's communities spread across four distinct um, agroecological zones to get a kind of snapshot in terms of what is going on in those um, particular farming communities. And so this is a rough idea as, as of, of the model. Uh, it involves, and of course, I need to point out that this was a collaborative effort, not just, it is a collaborative effort, and not just by the department, but we also, we've partnered with the International Center for Tropical Agriculture, uh, which is part of the CGIR group based in Colombia. Um, and basically, most of the downscaling is done there. And um, before this, most of the projections that we used to have were very rough. You know, you couldn't apply it to an island scale. And so it had to be downscaled for us to use it in the, in the crop suitability models. Um, what we do for the crop modeling is to take that data using a mechanistic model. Um, in this case, we use EcoCrop. And we look at how those changes will affect the growing parameters for specific crops. So by looking at IPC scenarios, um, we, we, we stuck to the business as usual um, scenario in this case. And we looked at how changes in terms of temperature um, and precipitation in general. There are a variety of different biophysical variables in terms of evapotranspiration, humidity, um, minimum, maximum temperature, minimum, maximum um, rainfall, all of those different variables. Um, we plug that, those into the model and then we looked at um, agro, agronomic data that we had in terms of you know, each crop requires a certain level of um, temperature and rainfall to produce maximum yields, for instance. So if there's a change in terms of that particular range, then it will affect the, 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 the performance of that particular crop. So we were able to use a suitability index to show which crops would be affected more by these changes. Um, and then alongside that, we were able to do our vulnerability um, assessments in the community. It was very particip participatory, of course, in terms of going into the communities and finding out from the farmers themselves what were some of the impacts they were facing. And we used uh, basically those, all those three information in terms of the climate data the crop modeling data and the vulnerability assessments to come up with um, an idea in terms of how vulnerable each community would be. So just to just browse quickly into the preliminary findings. Um, so far, uh, we've, we've almost completed the project um, in terms of the data collection phase for at least three of the major components. and. Um, you know, preliminary analysis has revealed several important findings as it relates to exposure, sensitivity, and adaptive capacity in the four communities. Uh, but for today's presentation, I just want to focus on farmers' biophysical exposure and sensitivity. And of course, 
even though I'm focusing on this, we are very much you know, cognizant of the fact that it's these challenges, vulnerabilities are mediated by a range of different socioeconomic realities. Um, and when you talk about realities, a major challenge, for instance, that we have to deal with in Jamaica is it's bad governance. Um, and as a good example of this, you know, we're, st we're still trying to negotiate the IMF loan, um, loan agreement. And in the heights of that, the government took 60 million Jamaican dollars to buy um, SUVs for, um, for politicians while we were trying to negotiate with the IMF in terms of trying to secure a loan agreement. So when you talk about misallocation of, of funds, you know, we're doing the work at the ground level, but there are a number of other things that happens at the policy level that is very much significant to what we're doing here. And so even though we're doing all of this research, one of the biggest challenge, challenges that we have is trying to convince politicians that what we're doing actually is important. And so that's a totally different um, part of it in terms of the problem that we're faced with. Um, the methodology is a, is a very, um, as I said, participatory um, type approach in terms of we try to incorporate the communities as much as community members as much as possible. Uh, for this phase, we, we did a survey of 231 farmers, uh, which was basically a 10% sample of each community. And here you'll see a breakdown in terms of the different agroecological zones for each community. Uh, in terms of the climate, climate, climate data, we, we, we're expecting to see an increase by about 1.1 degrees Celsius by 2030 and 1.7 degrees Celsius by 2050. So we're expecting to see an increase in temperature and a slight decline in precipitation. And interestingly, we're expecting to see a geographical shift in terms of suitability for specific crops towards higher altitudes. And we also found small farmers and female-headed households are highly vulnerable. Um, but at the same time, we saw varied geographies in terms of vulnerability. And so this is just showing you some of the changes that we, that we expect in terms of uh, maximum temperature for 2050. You can see that there, there is a slight change as you move forward um, compared to 2030 and, and the current, um, current projections. Uh, the very interesting thing with this work is that the findings at the, at the community levels more or less confirm some of the projections that we made. For instance, farmers um, in the communities themselves identified that they have seen a decline in rainfall over the last few decades. So this is very important. And of course, we're hoping to get some publications with these because it is showing you where the local knowledge is actually supporting the scientific knowledge. And I think that's very, very important. Um, the, what we looked at uh, responses to rainfall changes. Uh, the sad reality is that most of the farmers, even though they identified changes, they weren't responding. So even though they realized that there was a change, you weren't seeing, you weren't, you weren't, you're not seeing that you know, adaptation to these changes as it relates to rainfall. Um, the same thing with drought. Uh, interestingly, Hanslow stands out here because, as I said before, it's located in southern St. Elizabeth. And so you find that they are particularly vulnerable to changes in terms of um, distribution of rainfall. And so you can see where they, they, they stand out compared to all the other communities. 
Um, while in the case of Spring Hill, which is already in a very wet zone, um, even though they've seen changes uh, in terms of you know, imp drought impacts, they have not been impacted as much as the other communities. Uh, in terms of adaptation strategies, there are a range of adaptation strategies for drought, which is very interesting, uh, which reveals that there is still some, some gap in terms of you know, what some of the farmers were saying as it relates to rainfall. But I think the big difference is that with drought, which is a way more extreme change, um, farmers have over time, and a, and a, and a change that <coughs> has been happening for a longer period, farmers have adapted, but mostly within St. Elizabeth compared to the other communities. So one of the things that's coming out from the research is that maybe, for instance, you know, farmers located elsewhere in other parts of the, of the country could actually learn from some of the adaptive strategies that the farmers in, in, in parts of St. Elizabeth have actually employed. But there needs to be some form of you know, sharing of information between um, these groups, which is really left to the responsibility of the Ministry of Agriculture. Uh, last, in terms of the future vulnerabilities, um, the, so the crop models basically showed that there will be significant changes over time. And of course, um, these, these crops that we've basically flapped um, are the ones that are expected to see you know, significant changes over time in terms of suitability. And um, all of these crops are very important to Jamaica, of course, in terms of domestic consumption. So any significant change in the performance of these crops will have a significant implication for food security. And this is just to show you one of the examples in terms of the Irish potato, um, in terms of current data, um, and also in terms of the expected changes by 2050. Uh, and um, yeah, basically next steps is to further the research. What we've been doing in terms of crop modeling is really just the first step because it's very mechanical um, and mechanistic. So we have to do a, a number of different trials. So we're going to do some more plant varietal work to look at different cultivars, for instance, with Irish potato, to see which cultivars might be best suited for specific local conditions. And um, so basically the work is as, as, as just begun in that, in that regard. Thank you very much, Thank you. We'll ask the three speakers that come and sit at the front in a second, but are, are there any immediate questions to Kevin concerning his research uh, in, uh, on food insecurities? What's the reason But I, I do think that part of the reason for resisting change is linked to culture, um, where you know a lot of these farmers, they've decided to invest in particular crops because they've seen their forefathers. That's what that's what they've been used to, and a very interesting thing in Jamaica as well too is a lack of information. I remember when we were struggling to to keep the. Um, <coughs> The, the banana industry, the export sector, again, when we were under threat with the World, World Trade Organization. And we thought that once we, if we lost the, the UK market in terms of banana, um, it would wipe, would wipe out the, the, the entire industry. That's for Jamaica. 
when they actually did it, they finally realized that there was a big domestic market for banana in Jamaica. And so now they're, they're producing even more than just bananas, but we've gone into value-added stuff. We have banana powder and a whole heap of different types of you know, added value products. So that's the other challenge as well, lack of information. And I don't think um, we have much information when it comes on to plant genotypic data in terms of which cultivars are the best suited for our local <coughs> climate. <coughs> yeah, well, yeah, just two, two questions. That'd be great. So, would you, um, sir, and then. And then yeah, I, I noticed on one of your slides you, you said that the volatility in the climate is affecting the smaller uh, uh, farmers and the, the households headed by women more than others. Is part of the strategy then to persuade some people to, to give up their holdings and to amalgamate? To, to bigger, bigger units, is that one of the consequences that could be planned, or is it an axe that just happened? Uh, no, that is, that is one of our concerns. Clearly, the major reason why small farmers are vulnerable is because of the limited capital that they have. The sad thing is that there hasn't been a culture of um, cooperative or group farming in Jamaica. So when you compare it with Latin America, where you can have an entire cooperative having 3,000, 4,000 members, the average cooperative in Jamaica would be 12. And there's a strong issue with trust. Um, I've seen several times when the government have intervened and they've forced farmers to come together. And within two weeks, the cooperative you know, falls apart. And then it reforms itself, but with a very small group of persons who, have, who trust themselves, uh, trust each other. And um, it's not also surprising to see a pastor or some religious person involved in a group. I think the trust network issue is a, is a major issue as well. But if we are to move forward, yeah, I do think group farming is the way to go. But there will be a lot of you know, training and, and educating farmers in terms of the benefits for group farming as opposed to farming on their, on their own. And um, as, while we are very much sensitive to gender issues, I still think we have a far way to go in Jamaica in terms of you know, creating more gender sensitive policies and understanding the differences in terms of the challenges that men face compared to women. And so when I say gender, I'm not just saying women, but we also need to understand that different, there are certain gender roles. And so a female farmer usually is a single, is a single mother. And so she has to be juggling household duties alongside farming duties. And so the challenges that she faces way different from the challenges that a, a male farmer would face. Yeah. 